1: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Co.
2: This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback.
3: Pushkin.
4: Hey everyone, this is Talk Easy. I'm San Francisco, so thank you for being here. Today marks 21 years since the attacks on 9-11. You may remember that last September, we put together this special around that painful, historic day. And I was thinking... As we find ourselves toward the end of summer, in this kind of pandemic purgatory, I wanted to replay this episode to celebrate frontline workers, the ones that have carried us forward since March of 2020, and the ones that helped a nation in repair after the attacks. For 10 months, these first responders, including firefighters, policemen, EMS, construction workers, the Salvation Army, all of them, They put their lives on the line and families on hold. Every morning, rain or shine, they shuttled in and out of Ground Zero to produce the demolition, excavation, and removal of tens of thousands of debris. And to help us remember that period, we sat with four people who were actually there in the aftermath of 9-11. While you hear these stories today, we've created a virtual exhibit to accompany the episode. If you'd like to follow along, you can visit TalkEasyPod.com slash Aftermath. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash Aftermath. We've also included that link in the description of this episode. These remarkable images that you'll see were taken by Joel Meyerowitz. He's one of the finest photographers of the last century. And in the aftermath of 9-11, he spent nine months at Ground Zero creating this seminal archive. Now, you don't necessarily need to look at these photos to appreciate these stories, but we do hope you follow along. Given the subject matter, some of the material in this episode is extremely sensitive. Same goes with Joel's photography. But if you do visit the site, what you'll see is the only comprehensive monographic testament to the thousands of workers who spent months cleaning up the devastation. So, if you're so inclined, you can follow along with us at talkeasypod.com slash aftermath. That's talkeasypod.com slash aftermath. To start today's episode, here's Joel Meyerowitz on how this archive came to be.
5: Hi, Sam, it's Joel Meyerowitz. I'm 83. I was 63 when I first went into Ground Zero and. I didn't have a job. It was a self-appointed mission of compassion and history. I'm a native New Yorker, a boy from the Bronx. I grew up on the streets in the working-class ghetto in the Bronx. I wanted to be of service in some way. There was very little I could do. And then I saw the opening that Mayor Giuliani had basically closed, and I figured out how to get into the last little bit of space that there was. The first thing I did was walk downtown to uh, stand on on Chambers Street as close to the pile as I could, and really there was nothing to see because they had already barricaded um, the entirety of the site with cyclone fencing, and they draped big tarpaulins over everything so you couldn't really see in. I only saw smoke rising. And standing in a crowd of people, I raised my camera just to sort of look and see what might be seen, which was nothing. And suddenly I got a quack on my shoulder and I turn around and there's a cop in my face. And she says, hey, buddy, no photographs. This is a crime scene. I'm shocked. And I said, what do you mean It's a crime scene? The crime scene's over there, inside. We're standing here on the street, where this is where citizens are, you know, and I want to go in there and, and, and work. And she said, Mayor Giuliani has said no photography allowed. So don't raise your camera here, or I'll take it away from you. And I said, well, you won't take it away from me because there's no reason to. And I want to know why there's no photography. And she said, I don't know. That's what he said. I had one of those light bulb moments where I thought, "Oh, he can't do this. He can't stop history from being written. We have first amendment rights here and and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to make an archive of everything that's going on so that we have a historical record." And so I I started to create whatever lines of communication I had with people who were in the know in government or had connections to people in the government. Uh, I called somebody at the Museum of the City of New York and bit by bit, I, I saw that I wasn't going to get much help and so I turned to a friend of mine, Adrian Beneby, who was the Commissioner of Parks in New York City. Adrian knew that I was a straight arrow. He gave me a worker's pass from the park department. The next morning, He had one of his Smokies, a ranger, drive me into the site on a little three-wheeled vehicle and drop me in the middle of Ground Zero. My goal was to photograph everything that was going on in terms of the search and the removal of the debris, the workers whose efforts lasted for nine months, all of this as if I was recording the Civil War or I was a World War II combat photographer. I stayed in for nine months, I photographed regularly, and I built what stands now as the World Trade Center archive.
6: My name is Amadeo Pulley. I'm 55 years old. Uh, I am a retired New York City detective. Uh, At the time of 9-11, I worked for the NYPD Arson and Explosion Squad.
4: Where were you on 9-11? Actually, I
6: I had taken off that day to take care of my son. My wife went to work. Uh, She worked at Kennedy Airport. And that morning, it was a beautiful day. I was there uh, with my son and I get a call and it was my mother. She basically said, are you at the office? Are you working? Are you okay? I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, turn on the TV. There's a plane that hit the towers. I immediately called my wife. I said, listen, I don't know what's going on. You need to get back home. She raises, she picks up my daughter, raises home. I told her, don't even shut the car off. I'm taking a car right into Manhattan. I got to go. I got to be at the office. My guys are working. Uh, I raced downtown Manhattan, but I did get stopped. I was going through the, uh, it's called the BQE Expressway. Luckily, I didn't get stopped too far behind. Uh, I was in like the second row of cars, but you could see the towers clearly from the bridge. And the police is right there, not letting anybody through. Basically, they had shut everything down. I did have my credentials, uh, a light that I put on the dashboard, and I was waiting for them to catch my eye. I didn't want to start yelling, you know, out the window. But before I did, I, could, I noticed a man on my right-hand side in the car. He was so distraught, and he was basically, like, banging his head and his hands on the steering wheel, looking at the towers. I, I can never forget that scene. Finally, uh, the officer looks at me. Uh, I told listen, I'm with the Arson Explosion Squad. I got to get down there. So I get down there, park. I found a sergeant from Missing Persons and um, one of my teammates uh, from the Arson Explosion Squad. And we tried to get a game plan going to meet whoever was down there to, at the towers. Uh, at this point, I believe the second one had hit, but they were still up. So we start heading over not very far from the NASDAQ building. It's a big black building that's located just east of the towers, like basically across the street. We started getting closer and... At this point, there was no sun, you couldn't see the sky. It was all gray, it was really dark. And all of a sudden, as we're racing, going towards the towers, we hear a real deep sound. It was like a And so as it got louder and louder, someone somewhere, I don't know who started yelling, it's a third plane. And then everything started shaking. At this point, everybody's pretty much just running and just confused. So I start realizing I don't have a radio because we didn't have time to get radios. I don't have any communication. You don't have any cell. You don't have anywhere to contact anybody. So you don't know who's where, what's going on. So uh, I finally found a THV, uh, NYPD THV with radios. They were handing out radios. And then I head back towards headquarters. When I get there, everybody's just all over the place trying to figure out what had just happened.
4: What did your wife think about you going into town?
6: We didn't really have much time to talk. It was just like, be careful. And I basically told her, listen, shut the windows, shut the doors, lock up. I don't know what's going on. I'll try to call you. I mean, after we spoke, I actually didn't come home for probably a day or so to come home, change, shower and go back. There were long days. There were like 18, 20 hour days. It was very long days.
4: In the aftermath, as you start the recovery project, what is your job entail?
6: At first, it was trying to rescue, but there really wasn't that many people to rescue. You know, I don't want to get too graphic, but most of it was just recovering basically body parts. The World Trade Center, it's very, it's got, I I forgot how many floors that go down. You know, there was stuff, cars intact. So people technically probably could have survived, but who knows with all that smoke. But at some point we were, in the subway system. It was more towards the middle of September. The beams that it shot through there, these are 20 ton beams. They just went right through the concrete and they just embedded themselves in the subway system. It was, it was unbelievable.
4: What did your typical day look like in those first couple of weeks?
6: First couple of weeks were very long days. We'd go there, uh, meet up at headquarters. You'd set up with your team until they could figure out what hours, who's gonna work what, so they'd shorten them up a little bit. But it still ended up being 16, 17 hour days. The first couple of days was a very, a lot of bucket brigade type things where, you know, the lines were long and you just, guys were digging and you just pass buckets and try to dig and find and, and looking for people. And then it was more of cutting out sections, seeing if there were people there, what we can find, anything. And then at a certain point we were told to look for the black box, things like that. So, you know, there was, it, every day was different. It was a lot of like hope you could find something. And then, like I said, it was more recovery to, to get samples of DNA, you know, for, for closure for people.
4: When you're looking for the bodies and the black boxes, how the hell do you do that and not fall apart?
6: There were a lot of sad days there because of the families that would go down there looking for their loved ones. You know, it wasn't just the police and firemen that passed away that day. It was, it was a lot. I mean, there was a whole building filled with people and stories and families. You know, fathers, mothers, uncles, all that stuff. One thing that was that I do remember is is, is that everybody got closer. At, at least they, they felt like. The world had gotten a little bit closer, uh, a little bit more tight-knit. All the volunteers were amazing. I mean, there were just so many people coming from all over the place, volunteer firemen, volunteer ambulance workers, the Salvation Army, different companies set up stations for food to eat because you know, there was nowhere to eat really eat down there. So there was a lot of sad times, not really good times, but better days than others there.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: There was a lot of tension there too. What do you mean? You know, between the fire department, and the police department, and, and, and sometimes like who's going where and who's doing what, and you can prepare all you want. Nobody's prepared for something like this. Nobody's prepared. You know, was, uh, they lost a lot of guys at firemen I that day. I mean, I mean, we still continue to lose firemen and, and police officers every day from cancers and things like that. But down there, you know, everybody's processing differently. Temper sometimes flared because it was just long days and people would walk around there that shouldn't be there. And then, you know, guys would get upset you know, kick people out, things like that. I mean, Joel uh, Myrowitz, he almost got kicked out of there quite a few times. I almost kicked him out of there.
4: What did he say to you that convinced you to not kick him out?
6: He just showed me this letter that he got from, I think it was the mayor's office or something like that. You know, somebody, I'm sure he showed it and some people were like, who cares? You know, I don't don't care about a letter. But what he explained to me was that somebody's got to keep a record of this, you know, video, photography, whatever. Somebody's got to keep a record of this. and, and, And that's... You know, that for me was like, okay, that's fine. So I went over, I asked my lieutenant, you know, hey, listen, this guy's name is Joe Meyerowitz, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of, we carried his camera and we carried some of the equipment for him and we brought him up to the Amex building. That's basically what I wanted to show him because it was, I thought it was just such an incredible thing to see out there, especially at night.
4: Were you or any of your colleagues in this photograph here aware of the potential health concerns?
6: Oh uh, yeah, we were all aware. There was an area that we were digging, and uh, a couple of guys from the uh, what was it like OSHA or DEP, you know, the Environmental Protection or whatever. They, they you know they monitor the air, and they're like, "Hey, what are you guys doing? What are you doing here?" I'm like, "Oh, we're, we're working. We're digging. What do you think we're doing?" Uh, and you see the masks that we're wearing there. They're good. They're, they're not great. Uh, the ones that are hanging around my neck, and and I don't even know what I was wearing that particular day because it started off with paper masks, basically. Painter's Master, which, which basically is nothing. And he goes, Well, you shouldn't be here. I'm like, Why? He goes, uh, Out of a scale from one to 10, this is about an 11 or 12 if you don't want to be inhaling this stuff. You know, so we were aware.
4: And the group's response to that was, What? We have a job to do?
6: Basically, nobody, nobody left. We do what we do for a living because, you know, what we did for a living because that's what we want to do. We were there to help. And, you know, if we were finding a lot of, you know, uh, remains, that's a good thing. It's closure for somebody.
4: How many of the men in this photo are still here with us?
6: Oh, thankfully, everybody. Later on, we lost Carmen Figueroa of cancer. She was a detective also at the Arson Explosion Squad. I mean, on the first day, we lost a bomb squad member, Danny Claude Richards. He, he actually went in and uh, never came back out. So we did lose. And, and of course, we lost other, other people uh, later on due to cancer.
4: Why don't we take a look at a man in a basket flying the stars and stripes with a Native American at its center?
6: I can't say enough about the iron workers. Those guys were crazy. Why crazy? They just walked on beams like it's nothing. They're not afraid of heights, so it's kind of like, you know, I just. Uh, you know, these beams don't look so big in these pictures, but they are 20, 30 ton beams, and like they look like pixie sticks, right? But when you're working on top of them, you have to understand, like, you don't know if, if they're going to shift. And there's really nothing underneath. There were giant gaping holes underneath. And they were smoldering to the day we left in, in November. They were still hot underneath. So all of September and October, it was hot underneath. You know, you could still see smoke in, in picture 109. It lasted for quite a few months. I mean, it was incredible. But these guys, they walked across these beams like it was nothing. Like it was absolutely nothing to them.
4: What's something about the aftermath of 9-11? that you think people don't understand, but ought to?
6: I don't know if people realize how, how great this country really is when it's something like this happens, the way everybody just came together. I mean, and actually, it wasn't even just the United States. It was like the world. I mean, we had guys from uh, France there helping out, Mexico, or just all over the world. And everybody came together. It was, like a, it, it, was, it was pretty amazing. I mean, there were people, whatever they could do. The kids were writing letters, whatever it was. It all helped. I don't know if people can realize that, you know, this country is pretty good.
4: Why don't we take a look at the handmade banners on the fence of St. Paul's Chapel?
6: Yeah, I remember there was so many notes and letters and just words of encouragement for everybody down there. You you notice, okay, people care. You know, they're doing whatever they can to help out.
4: What's it like looking at this book, 20 years removed? Unbelievable. It's funny at the sphere one day,
6: it was very hot underneath on my boots and out of nowhere. I told Joel this, and I totally forgot about it. But he reminded me that uh, I told him about these butterflies, these monarch butterflies that I saw, and I didn't know the story about monarch butterflies or the folklore. Basically, it represents you know the souls of people, the Mexican in the Mexican culture. They, that they represent like the souls of the people that are gone. So it was kind of interesting.
4: You've said a couple times I don't want to be too graphic about the job you did. You're doing a job no person should ever have to do. And when you look back on it now, do you wonder how you did it?
6: No, you pretty much stuff everything down in law enforcement uh, and pretty much, and and especially in New York, where you see a lot, where it's a busy area and you see a lot of crime and a lot of murders and things like that. You kind of just get used to it, I guess. You just, it's just part of the job. I really feel bad for people who are not used to this type of thing. And obviously I'm not used to something like the World Trade Center, but something as heavy as this and... I have a friend who, who witnessed people jumping, you know, and he's just a, you know, he's just a guy who was working and it was his building was pretty much level to see these people jump and see their faces and everything. I mean, that's so traumatizing for people, you know, it's for anybody, even law enforcement, or firemen, whoever. But for a person who's never seen anybody die or, you know, at this point in my career, I'd seen plenty of people pass away in many different ways. So for me, it's kind of like, OK, it's another day at work. What trauma
4: has stayed with you?
6: During that time, I was more aware of my surroundings as far as like, I don't know if it was paranoid or whatever, but if I saw something, I used to, I used to call 911, even on my off time. If I saw a box somewhere, if I saw something some, somewhere, you know, your, your senses kick in. You don't trust as many people, you know, things like that.
4: Can you walk us through what happens in your life in the intervening years between your work being finished on The Recovery Project and, and now?
6: Oh, it's a lot mellower. Now that I'm in, uh, I'm in North Carolina. But after 9/11, you know, you just move on with your job. Uh, I went on and became a hostage negotiator. Yeah, you I know, moved around the department a little bit.
4: I like how you're saying your next job was more mellow, and your next job was a hostage negotiator.
6: Okay, maybe mellow is not the, the right word, but it was, it was, it was uh, definitely interesting times uh, when you get called. That was my, I think that was that and the arson explosion were my two favorite uh, units to be in. So, I mean. I retired, but really went back to work. So I didn't give myself any time to decompress or anything. But then I did. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take some time off. And while decompressing, I you know, started feeling some back pain. And so I went to go check it out and ended up finding a tumor in my kidney. There was cancer and all this other stuff. You know, and since it was 9-11 related, so it hits a little bit more. It was kind of like, oh boy, back to this. We're talking about 9-11 again. But, you know, I was also, also had a, respiratory issues and sinus problems because of all the stuff we inhaled. And, and that was just part of the, uh, you know, uh, so many people got the same stuff. But thank God, I mean, I had really good doctors. I went to Sloan Kettering. Uh, they took really good care of me. Had some you know, surgery and that was that. I've been cancer free ever since. So can't really complain.
4: But when you have these illnesses that remind you every day of those months down there, how do you move forward from that? Honestly, you
6: just gotta just keep grinding. Just you don't want to forget things, and but you can't dwell on, on, on everything all the time. You really can't, or it's just gonna eat you up. Therapy helps, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if if uh, I actually did a little bit of that because I didn't realize that I needed it, so I actually went to speak to someone and I'm like, yeah, it's perfectly normal. The person you know who I was talking to, the therapist, she was like, yeah, talked to a lot of responders with the same. We all give the same answers basically. You know, she's like, you guys all pretty much sound the same.
4: Do you think you'll ever visit the museum? Yeah, I'll
6: eventually get down there. I don't know when, but yeah, I'll eventually get down there.
4: Why haven't you, do you think?
6: I don't know. I, I don't know. I just haven't had the urge. I don't even watch the, you know, nine eleven documentaries. And the, for the for at least 10 years, I couldn't even look at that stuff. Even now, sometimes I'll see some pictures. I'm like, oh,
4: that was bad. Why don't we take a look at... This is a welder wounded by an explosion of buried ammunition in the customs building.
6: I remember hearing the shot go off. He's lucky he didn't lose his eye. I remember that vividly. I mean, there was one day where I was sitting on a couple of beams. They were a little bit on top of each other. They were huge, uh, huge beams. And uh, there was a guy next to me. And for whatever reason, I just hopped off and I just walked away. Not more than five seconds later... They shifted and they pinned this guy in there. He lived, but uh, he was there for quite a while. It was scary.
4: This is October twenty eighth. What's happening in this photo?
6: It's a memorial service. Uh, uh, the mayor had, uh, Giuliani had allowed people to go down there, and uh, because nobody was allowed down there, it was too much going on. It was dangerous, but uh, that day they had, a, they had a memorial. Yeah, on page one seventy one, I remember being on top of those buildings, especially the one. I think that's Building Five. Well, trips into five. From, I'm pretty sure we were out there. and We found uh, the frame of the plane, actually.
4: Were you ever angry about what happened?
6: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you get angry at terrorists and stuff like that. It's only normal. But then w- what can you do?
4: In that aftermath, what made you proud to be an American? And what made you less proud?
6: It's like going back to before. Just the unity. That's something to be proud of, the way everybody came together. Less proud, probably not stopping those planes. <laughs> Maybe something could have been done before that if we knew to prevent what happened, that would have been uh,
4: something. You said that you don't feel like people have that same unity now.
6: I don't really see it. Everybody's on their own thing. I don't remember what it was like for September 10th, if you know, the country was closer or not, because I can't really can't remember. But they were close back then, you know, right after on, on September 11th and moving forward for a while, quite a long time.
4: It seems like you're determined to not have those months define your life.
6: No, no. I'd rather be defined as a good dad. <laughs> you know, just, that, that was my past and we'll leave it there. I don't want to forget because you can't. If I wanted to, I could never forget that, uh, those times. But there's a lot more to life. Uh, keep going. I mean, there's uh, so many people have passed away since. I, I got to enjoy what I have right now.
4: Amadeo Pulley, stay safe. Thank you.
7: My name is Yvonne Sanchez. I am retired from the New York City Fire Department, EMS Division. I am 55 years old.
4: On the day of 9-11, you're celebrating your 11th year as an EMT. What do you remember about that day?
7: My job and my, and my team, well, EMS job, was body recovery and identification, which entails working with um, NYPD K9 search and rescue dogs. When the canine would um, sit anywhere inside the pit, we knew that in that area there was a victim. And so that's when our team would come and, you know, with the deepest amount of respect, remove the victim, place it in a body bag, and then take it to one of the makeshift morgues. And we would search the body and, if they had some identification on them, then we would log it in with that identification of the location, time and date. And because my job was to pronounce officially pronounce the body, they would go to Bellevue Morgue and be notified by their relatives.
4: And yet, even in spite of not being there right away, you do decide to go down. And you do work in in the aftermath of this. What was your job in the aftermath of nine eleven?
7: I was working. My shift started at seven o'clock in the morning. It was a beautiful day, and I received a nine eleven call for an elderly who had fallen, and he was known to me because it was in my area where I, you know, where I work, and so when I went to the hospital is when, as we were with the stretcher going into the emergency room, we see what's going on at the World Trade Center. And um, so we quickly got our patient triaged and we went to ground zero. But the problem was, is that now we had traffic and you had everybody going the opposite way. So I didn't show up until after the buildings collapsed. And I believe that this gentleman, this elderly sweet gentleman that i've I've responded to his house before that he saved my life because I would not be here right now because, like I said, I did start at seven o'clock, and that probably would have been my first call of the day was responding down to nine eleven
4: How often do you think back on those two roads
7: every day, every day
4: in those early days, when you're trying to recover remains. What is your state of mind?
7: Well, I had lost a dear friend of mine. He was EMS and he had laddered over to FDMI. And his his last location was walking over to the Millennium Building. There's where we lost contact with Hector. And he had five children and a very lovely wife. And all I wanted to do was bring closure to those kids, which we never did. So every day that I would go there, I would say to myself, today is the day that we find Hector. And ultimately, we never were able to recover his body.
4: At some point, did you give up looking for your friend?
7: No. No, uh, we buried uh, an empty casket before the recovery efforts stopped in May. But we all hoped that we can recover some remains to bring some closure to his family. And in my mind, I had to, I had to be there.
4: Let's take a look at you down there. A photo taken by accident, I think. What do you remember about this?
7: Well, I was just entertaining myself mentally. And I see a gentleman taking random pictures down at the pit. And again, we used to get a lot of looky-loos and stuff like that. So I walked up to him and I said, what are you doing? He had said, I don't remember exactly, but I did believe that he mentioned the mayor and that he was taking pictures for the mayor. I said, yes, no, <laughs> uniform members did not like Giuliani. I hated him. <laughs> but it. But anyway, so when he said the mayor, I kind of laughed and I go, oh, okay. And... We spoke for a few minutes and he asked for my permission to take the picture. And I said, sure. Um, The usual cheeky response that I give to anybody asking for my picture is that please don't make me look fat. And he started laughing. He goes, I promised. And I think we spoke for a few seconds. He asked for my name and I told him, you can also include that I was in the New York City FDNY calendar. And he said, I will. And that was it.
4: When you look back at this photo of yourself and some of your other colleagues, what does it make you think of?
7: 20 years later, that lady there didn't think there were gonna be people dying from illnesses related to 9-11. And I look at all these people on the same page and the next, that gentleman who has a larger picture Is he still alive or is he suffering from any of the illnesses that we were told didn't exist back then?
4: What was your response once you found out there's definitely something wrong with the air?
7: Well, you could see like this dust all over my hair and on my clothes. And I would go home every single night and I would regurgitate this horrible color And it wasn't like I was eating down there because the the water was contaminated. We had to have food brought in and it was just horrible. It was just like I would have trouble breathing at night. And I'm thinking, well, okay, this is just temporary. I didn't realize that 20 years later, I would be diagnosed with asthma, COPD. I was diagnosed with cancer. By the end of the 10 months, I had eight bleeding ulcers in my stomach that the gastroenterologist said that, I think you have cancer, we have to do all these biopsies. And it turned out that I just had this parasite in my stomach that I had to be put on antibiotics for three months to aggressively kill it.
4: Once the recovery project ends in May of 2002, how long after until you realize you have some of these sustained conditions?
7: I knew soon after, but I did not put the connections between it being World Trade Center or it being something else. And when the fire department started the World Trade Center monitoring program, the doctors there said, when I presented my symptoms, they said, well, we did a study. These are the symptoms that you would present if you were exposed to these types of toxic chemicals. And he goes, you're presenting chronic sinusitis, chronic sinus infection, chronic lung infections, and you know, and the issues with, with your GI intestinal tracts. And he said, those were the immediate effects from 9-11. And I was told that a lot of uniform female members were not being able to carry their pregnancy the full term that they were having ovarian issues or their children were being born with certain f- forms of, of medical defects. They kept saying it could have been the radios. And I'm like, what do you mean radios? You know, it seems like everybody was saying, well, 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 you know. And I remember in the beginning, going back to day one, we were using Stuyvesant High School and the elementary school adjacent to it. There were doctors volunteering down there and canine. And so there was a lot of stuff coming in there. At one point we were using it as a makeshift morgue. And I remember going home and then coming back and my superiors telling me, we're moving, we're moving command further down because we have to open the school. And, and I said, but how are you going to open this school? We literally destroyed this school. Three floors of the school. There were dogs defecating in, in there because they were traumatized from doing what they were trained to do. People were donating all this food and they bought it into auditorium and it was just sitting there and it was rotting. But how can you not have this properly decon before these kids I said people do not care about children and uh, you know and I had to do my job and we had to move further down you don't know how much I was an advocate to making sure that school was clean and it just went on deaf ears
4: did it make you feel powerless in that situation
7: I mean, I was a woman, you know, women 20 years ago did not have the same respect as they do now. And, and they don't even have that much respect in, as a uniform member. So imagine a woman because they would say, oh, would you just being hysterical. And it turned out to be correct. Those high school, school students were dealing with also health issues.
4: How many male colleagues of yours said, what are you doing
7: here? I asked myself that question, what am I doing here? Every day, like, every day I was down there. And every night I would go home and I'd say, I'm not doing this anymore. And the next day I would get up and I would do it. And on my way down, I would pep myself with a nice pep talk. Today is the day we find Hector. Today is the day we find Hector. And that day never happened.
4: In the years to come when you receive one diagnosis after another, Did you feel like the city failed you?
7: Oh, for sure. The city failed me. And the mayor failed us. They all failed. They all failed. There was no love. There was no love to us at all. Only on the day of the anniversary. All those same politicians are going to say, never forget. We never forget. But, you know, when we're in front of them telling them that, all these people are dying and we need to extend the World Trade Center bill. It took 18 years. I was shocked, I was shocked. These are the Republicans that I voted for since I was 18 years old. This is how they treat us. The Democrats all love, oh yes, we want to, we're gonna help you do that. And, and here are the Republicans, the total opposite. I see it now when they're trying to pass bills. You say, oh no, you know, they say it on on to a reporter that they care, they care, and you know, and then you you go by your business. But then when you see it firsthand, when you visibly see these politicians and they belittle you and they make you feel less than a whole person or human when when they They zero in on a minority female, the only minority female first responder on that team, points his finger at me and says, why did the country need to foot the bill for you to buy a pair of shoes? To me, not to them, but to me. And I look down and I'm wearing sneakers. I'm wearing $30 sneakers. I said, I, I'm a sub- cancer survivor. I was assigned down there for 10 months. I was injured. I have 25 surgeries. So you tell me what shoes am I looking for? And he goes, well, well, well. And he starts like, you know, stuttering and stuff like that. I said, so where's your shoes? What shoes are you buying? Is the country buying for me? Why? Because I'm Latina. Because Latinos are typecast as welfare recipients. I had a, a nicest board member tell me, well, I think the fire department gives you everything you want because of your looks. There goes those looks again. And, and I said, well, what do you mean? Um, so you mean that Sloan Kettering lied to me about having cancer or NYU lied to me that I had COPD? It's just that mentality. And that was the same mentality that we got in um, DC where he says, well, you know, you're not really that sick.
4: Since we are honoring the 20th anniversary, is there something about 9-11, the Aftermath Project, or even the years that followed that you really want people to understand?
7: That was one of the worst days. New York banded together so that we could bring back New York City to its original self. The uniform members all set aside their differences and their departments to work together. The Red Cross people that came, um, construction workers that decided to, because they didn't have to come down there, they could have gone anywhere else, that they felt they needed to be there and to be part of something that was bigger than us in our lives. And I think that moving forward, a country should realize that We are human, and we deserve the respect that we're supposed to get. And and not just by saying, never forget, we'll never forget, but by actual actions and not just by words. And ensuring that if this ever happens again in another town, another state, that they will be there to say, you know, we're here. We're gonna make sure that everybody's taken care of and we're gonna take care of you if, if you get sick.
4: As a single mother with two kids, the pain of the aftermath and, and, all, and all the health concerns you had after, how have you moved through your life with that trauma?
7: I'm still very uneasy around crowds. I'm always looking for the exit sign. I do not get on the trains. Planes, I'm afraid that I would be put in a situation where I'm going to have to run for my life or rescue people running from their lives. What would I do if this happens again? Would I run toward it or would I run away from it? And I keep saying I'm going to run away, but I doubt that I'll do that, out definitely run into it to to help people because it's in it's in my blood it was in my blood when i was in my early 20s when i when i joined and onto my very last wife. and i mean nobody does this job because of the pay because the pay sucks you do this job because you get the calling, just like you get a calling to become a priest or nun, a nurse or a doctor. You you you, you just don't do this for money because nobody's going to get rich being a uniform member. They do it because they heard the call and they decided to join the department and, and become a first responder.
4: Well, thank you for answering that call. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, you know, that never forget slogan you've mentioned a couple times. I think the only way we get past never forget is to understand what exactly we're not forgetting. Exactly. And you've helped us with that today. So, thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Yvonne Sanchez. Stay safe. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. After a quick break.
8: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility, their patient outcomes. Workflows and delivery of care were already great, but they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices, anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets, so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at t-mobile.com/ unconventional awards that's t-mobile.com/ unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat
1: Small business owners this one's for you Chase for business and iheart bring you a new podcast series called the Unshakables. or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients. Each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com/business/podcast. Chase: Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Co.
2: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect.
0: So my name is uh, John Ryan, and I'm uh, 61, and my job after 9-11 was the commander of the rescue recovery operation.
4: Where were you the day of
0: 9-11? I initially was home. It was my daughter's first day of school, and I had taken off to uh, attend her first day of preschool. I got a call and that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. I turned on the news and um, I saw you know, the uh, smoke coming from the tower. And while watching that, the second plane struck. And I realized that we were under attack. Upon my arrival into Manhattan and making my way down to the World Trade Center site, uh, both towers had already collapsed, and then I was present when uh, building seven collapsed into the street. There was very little traffic going in. Most of the uh, vehicles that I saw going in were either police or fire uh, that had their lights and sirens blaring. In
4: those early months, what did a typical day of yours look like?
0: Our typical day would begin with a briefing so we broke the site up into two 12-hour tours. I was the day tour commander of the rescue recovery operation, and a uh, Lieutenant Bill Keegan was the night tour commander. When we would meet in the morning, he would brief me on what occurred in the previous 12 hours, and then in the evening when he came in, I would brief him as to what we had done during the previous 12, and then we would hold site meetings with all of the, the different agencies and uh, trades that were participating in the rescue recovery operation. And we would, in the morning, go over what we hoped to achieve in the next 24 hours. And then we would also go over what we achieved in the previous 24 hours.
4: What was the morale of your colleagues in those daily reports
0: so the morale was high and you know it was a combination of feelings there you know sadness for the people that were lost but also driven uh, to try to recover as many of them as we could and not only amongst our colleagues but amongst the 2753 people that were lost at the site
4: And how many of those people did you recover?
0: So over the course of the nine months, we recovered in excess of 20,000 sets of remains. However, to this day, there are 1,106 people that have not been identified.
4: How did you process the fact that this very quickly became a recovery mission rather than a rescue mission?
0: You know, in the beginning our hopes were to find people alive in voids and we were basing that on you know the size of the buildings, some of the areas that we were searching that we found voids in so that gave us hope that there could be areas that you know people were surviving in. We were so focused and we were so intent on trying to recover as many people as possible. And what we did, taken into consideration in the early days, was based on subject matter experts from the urban search and rescue teams. And they had reported that in other locations, in particular in uh, earthquakes where there had been collapses, that people were found alive as long as 14 days after the collapse. So we were using that as a benchmark and uh, hoping that given that time period of potential survival, we were hoping that during that period that we may find other people uh, that had survived the, the collapse. After that 14-day period, we still had hope, but we also realized that the odds of survival were diminishing.
4: When you did identify the remains, did you have to talk To family members?
0: You would talk to family members on a regular basis because they would come to the site and would look for an update as to the prospects of finding their lost loved one.
4: How do you do that job?
0: So uh, I don't think it's one that you can prepare for. It's one there that relies very heavily upon your, your experience. And the combination of experience... But also having people that are performing that job with you, uh, having that same mindset there, that same focus, that same determination, and that same drive to try to recover uh, as many people as possible and return them to their families. Do you remember a phone call
4: you got from a family member where that determination to get the job done, where that focus broke because you could hear? the pain on the other side of the phone.
0: I received a letter and the letter was a um, note from a grandmother thanking me for finding uh, some remains of her grandson. And um, she was from the Jewish faith and the importance to have something to bury of a lost loved one is significant in the uh, Jewish religion. Um, It wasn't like I had saved her grandson. I had just recovered him, but the significance to her um, was not lost on it.
4: Why did that letter affect you so much?
0: I think, you know, being somebody that has chosen a career to help people and save people, receiving some type of thanks for not saving or helping somebody, but just recovering them. You know, I guess... um unfulfilled, I guess. You know, we had recovered, you know, a a body part of her grandson. But what it meant to her was, I guess, some degree of peace. As we're
4: approaching the 20-year anniversary, I was wondering, what do you think the general public doesn't understand about 9-11 and the aftermath? Do you think, they should understand.
8: Up
0: until the last few years, every person, for the most part, that I interacted with was able to tell me exactly where they were and what they were doing. It's only a recent uh, phenomenon that I'm seeing is that some people today that were either too young or weren't born, so they have no firsthand remembrances of 9 11. A, an experience to a historical event. In some ways, that's the one of the, the importances of uh, Joel's book and his photographs is that you know, if he had not taken those photos and not placed them into a book, all of that would have been lost to our memories. And um, people would have been reliant on us describing the event and different things that occurred in the 9 months that we were there.
4: So let's take a look at a few of these images together. This is uh an assembled panorama of the site from the World Financial Center.
0: It's the portion of the South Tower and then you see the uh the hotel um the what was left of the hotel and that brings back memories of the 93 attack. Cuz so the area right below the hotel was where the A van was detonated on February 26, 1993 and uh, killed six people, including uh, Monica Rodriguez-Smith and her unborn child.
4: Next here is a photo of the ironworkers.
0: We wouldn't have been able to complete the rescue recovery operation without the ironworkers and their ability to to cut the steel so that it could be removed. You know, that's uh, my tribute to them.
4: Right here is an image of a rescue dog on the plaza. Were dogs often employed in the rescue?
0: So they were, and there was a significant number of dogs, not only rescue dogs, relief dogs, cadaver dogs. And there was a number of them to the point there that Suffolk County that has a very uh, extensive mobile animal rescue hospital a bus that they brought that in there and. You know, unlike people, you know, the dog can't tell you when they're thirsty or tired or you know suffering from some type of exposure. The handlers would bring them to that area there, and I remember it being positioned on West Street there, uh, where they would then uh, hydrate them and provide them a degree of rest and and comfort. Did they make you feel better? I guess it's a natural reaction. You know, and a you know it serves as a distraction as well to see you know animals you know one of the things there that in the early days you know other than people uh, the one thing that was noticeable was that the site was sort of void of life you know as we got further into their recovery and really as we got to the end and we were so focused that we never really looked at as something that was going to end and I remember being on uh, West Street there, and uh, the trees were starting to bud, and there were birds that had come back. You know, both those things there, in some ways, sort of gave you a sense that you know things were returning to some degree of normal.
4: Of course, there was nothing normal about this situation. As the days went on, how did you process all the lives lost?
0: Everybody was different. I mean, for myself, you know, I just stayed focused on performing and moving around the site, responding to every recovery that was made. So when you think about it over the course of the nine months, you know, 20,000 recoveries. And while we didn't do it in the beginning, um, we developed a routine when we did do a recovery. In that the remains were placed in a body bag, the body bag was placed into a Stokes basket covered in an American flag. Then we would get one of the on-site chaplains to come down and do a prayer service. And then we would identify six people that would act as an honor guard to carry the remains to the either an uh, an awaiting ambulance or to one of the on-site morgues. And all work would stop and uh, everybody would line up and perform an honor guard to the recovery of that individual. So it was a, a process that once we developed it, was performed on a regular basis.
4: As someone who was intimately involved in trying to repair a part of this country, what can we learn from how you carried that grief with you?
0: You know, if you remember in the days after 9-11, people came together. You know, I mean, I can remember leaving, you know, the rescue recovery operation and traveling north on West Street. And there were people lined up in the center island and on the sidewalk there, you know, cheering us. There was really a sense of togetherness that that really overwhelmed, you know, society as a whole. You know, and that grew out of, you know, the the tremendous losses there so when you go through the, the 9-11 museum and you go into the family viewing area, the 2,977 people that were lost on 9-11, not only at the World Trade Center, but aboard the flights and in the Pentagon and in the field in Pennsylvania, and their families were asked to submit photos. The photos in particular stand out because the majority of the photos show people smiling, and I think it's something that we even appreciate even more now with the COVID pandemic is that closeness that we share with people. Again, it gets back to so Jimmy Richards, who's the fireman in the, the bottom photo, he lost his son in, um, you know, over the nine months, um, uh, most of the times that I interacted with him, um, he wasn't smiling. And then Marty, who's the person holding an item in his hands. You know, he's smiling, and uh, I think in some way he found this little piece of treasure. And then the EMS worker, you know, uh, is smiling, and the construction worker and the iron worker. I mean, and that's the the beauty of uh, uh, Joel's photo is that, you know, I remember all these people.
4: Why don't we take a look at these four photos from May 28th?
0: These are four photos that were of the May 28th ceremony in which we cut down the final column in preparation for the final day ceremony. And one of the people involved in the putting together the program for the uh, final day was going to exclude some of the workers. So much like everybody that worked the rescue recovery operation, you know, the people from the trade unions, the truck drivers, the laborers, the iron workers, everybody poured their heart and soul into doing this mission and then to show up one day and be told that there was no work for you and you were given a pink slip and you were basically excluded from coming into the site was very emotionally upsetting to them and then being told that they weren't going to be able to participate in the final day ceremony didn't sit well with them nor with us um given how important they were in Making this mission successful. So, we decided that in recognition of all those that had not been recovered or identified at that point, but also in recognition of all of the efforts that had been put forth by all of the people that worked the site, we designated May 28th as the Workers' Day. And in the evening of May 28th, we brought down all of the people, we didn't exclude anybody. And we had them participate in a ceremony in which we cut down that final column. You know, we came in as individuals, but we left as one when we all came together to prepare the column in the same way in which remains were treated. We lowered the column, we covered it in black bunting, we covered it in a large American flag, and we prepped it to be driven out on May 30th during the the closing ceremony. And if you go to the, the sequence of photos in which we lower the column, um, I'm actually in the top photo there, that we didn't notice that while we were doing that there that the entire crew of the USS Eward Dreamer, which was an aircraft carrier that had come in to New York and was docked up by the Intrepid. When we finally drew our attention away from the column and we looked up, we saw them silhouetted against the night sky, in their white uniforms, saluting us. And again, it was uh, a tribute to all of the people that worked in the rescue recovery operation. It was sort of a fitting end to that mission. And one thing that I've come to learn is that through all of this, you know, there's a thread that runs through it, and us all and you are now part of that threat as well so um i thank you for your service and for your time and your (laughs) desire to want to hear the story of the people that were lost and the people that responded to it
4: lieutenant john ryan thank you very much
9: My name is Bianca Quintanilla. I am 31 years old, and I'm representing the memory of my mother, Linda K. Betrano. She was actually one of the female workers that represented the Salvation Army at the time.
4: Where were you on
9: 9-11? So it's a funny story. I was actually at home sick. I, I kept in touch with my mother all day because she couldn't stay home with me. There was a really busy day at the office, so she had to be there. So, you know, periodically she'd call me throughout the day just to make sure I was laying down and, you know, and... All of a sudden she called and she's like so frantic. And I I just remember like, you know, mom, what's going on? Calm down. She said, turn on the news, turn on the news. And when I turned on the news, that's when I knew that everything basically changed for everyone. You know, like I couldn't believe what I was seeing. She's like, I'm on my way home, but it's a lot of traffic. So as soon as she gets to the house, it's so frantic because she's trying to get my brother and my sister out of school. Of course, they're at school. I'm at home thinking I'm having a, a day off, basically. So it's not actually that funny when I think about it, <laughs> because I got in trouble for playing hookies. So no, it wasn't that funny. I could have went to school, but she was already gone. So I stayed home. But, you know, like it was so frantic. And instantly we started calling all of our family members because my uncle actually lives in New York City, you know, so he was working like maybe blocks from the trade center.
4: And where did you live?
9: We lived in Alexandria, Virginia at the time. So we weren't very far from the Pentagon, you know, it was just the craziest thing. So we're calling my uncle and we're like, are you okay? And for a while there, we didn't get a response. And when he finally called us back, he's in tears. Like you could hear the fear in his voice. He was just so upset. He, you know, he literally had to run for his life. Like he said, he could turn around and he could see the tower falling. Like that's how close he was. It was horrible. And then my mother, you know, instantly, she's like, what can I do? You know, because, you know, working with the Salvation Army, they always did volunteer stuff. And anytime a mom could get her hands in there, she would. Like, that was her thing. Like, she was a, a, a caregiver. Like, she wanted to do anything and everything to help anyone she could.
4: Was she always like that?
9: Yes, always. Up until she went to the trade centers. So that was like a turning point for our lives. You know, everything changed after that for us.
4: Okay, so why don't we take a look at this photo of your mother who was down at the World Trade Center site. This is taken by Joel Meyerowitz. You hadn't seen this before.
9: No. No, I have not seen that and it was it's awesome to see, but you can also see that that was like when she was actually leaving because I remember her coming home with the helmet and everyone's signatures on it. And you can see that she has a darkness in her eyes, like she's no longer the happy person she left as. And I know that might sound cliche, but going there, I don't think that anyone really is mentally prepared. And it doesn't make you not a strong person. You know, it's just it's a lot.
4: So the woman you see in this photo is not the woman you knew as your mother. What happened that led to this image?
9: The first night that she got there, she called us and, you know, she was telling us, she kind of like dumbed it down for me because I was so young. But of course, my older brother and sister, you know, they got the the raw deal of it. As soon as she got there, she said that it was so much chaos, you know, like she was walking into literally a bomb scene, you know, like everything blew up, people's lives, people's everything. The people are all waiting outside the gate. And she said that the only thing she could remember was the smell of flesh. That just mentally messed her up. But of course, she was very strong, so she held it together the whole time she was there. But when she came home, she was just gone. After the Trade Center, she initially suffered from PTSD for the rest of her life. That was what it was, depression and yeah.
4: She was working for the Salvation Army. What did a typical day of hers
9: look like? So my mom was an administrative assistant. She wasn't in the, you know, in the aspect of saving lives or anything like that. You know, like she'd give a meal to someone if they needed a meal. But it wasn't anything as if, you know, the firefighter or paramedic, anything like that. But it's just that raw scene for her. She she was very strong, so she could do it. It's just that situation that she was put in at that time really triggered something.
4: And you noticed the change in her depression, even at age 11. Oh, yeah. What did that look like?
9: It was actually pretty scary. Because when she came back, she was a little like distant, although she talked about it quite often, not really to the extent of like overly talking about it, but she would like every so often let out a little bit more about it, you know? In pieces. Yeah. Pieces of what her mind would actually let out, you know, because it was pretty traumatizing because she kept saying that she wanted to do more and she couldn't do more. And she just kept seeing the people wait outside the gate as the people would like frantically run up to the gate when someone would come out when they found the body.
4: What were those pieces like that she shared? Uh,
9: Just like about the people that she would talk to, you know, like the family members that she would try to, like, comfort. It was so many bits and pieces of the story that were told. Of course, she told about, you know, like, oh, my goodness, you know, today we had a breakthrough. We found three live people. Of course, they're really injured, but we were able to get them to the hospital, you know. Like, she would say stuff like that, but there's not really much that she told in whole After she had returned home, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So then that was a whole nother whirlwind that she went through.
4: So in the 10 months of the recovery, she's diagnosed with MS. And then what happens?
9: And then she gets depressed and she realizes that she actually needs all this help from like her parents. Her mother actually lived in Virginia with us, you know, near us at the time. And then her father was in New York. So I didn't know where one day we come home from school. She says, guys, we're moving to New York. So we moved back to New York and now we're going to go live in my grandfather's, you know, my grandfather had two houses. So we're living in his extra house.
4: Where was
3: that?
9: Utica, New York. It's kind of like she let the depression take her. She never made a full recovery after that. I'm only able to speak on it because that responsibility fell on me. And my brother, when he turned 18, he went off to the military. My sister was off doing her own thing. So I initially had to take care of my mother, cooking for her, giving her her shots, everything. I don't think that anyone's ever really like checked on her. From this situation, yes, I know that this was a job that she had to do, but it initially caused, you know, the downfall with her, all of her depression. Every day she seriously relived it. How do you mean? Okay, so <laughs> without making her sound like overly, you know, with her sickness, like the bipolar schizophrenia that ended up triggering as well. She would periodically, quite frequently, do like living memorials where she would put her helmet on and set up candles and stuff, like right outside of her house. Thinking about it, I'm trying not to get emotional, but all the kids at school would laugh about it. And I'm like, no, 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 don't laugh. My mom's going through something. She's just really sad. Like she helped so many people and nobody understood. You know, of course I understood because I was there when it happened, but nobody understood what she was going through. So she initially got looked at as if she was insane, but this is what triggered it. And by no means am I saying, like, I don't, I didn't want her to go where I, you know, I regret the choice of being okay with my mother going. It's just, I feel that that was the key to unlocking this treasure that we got. And I'm not saying it's a good treasure.
4: She would do these memorial services outside of your house. Did you attend them?
9: No, she would kind of just go sit out there by herself. I don't think I knew how to handle it. So I would have probably snickered or even, you know, like, mom, what are you doing? You know, and that was just a nervous thing to do. But she was very serious about it. She wanted to pay honor to the people that lost their lives. It, it hurt so bad that all these people lost their lives and I couldn't do more. And at the same time, what could she have done more? She went and she did what she had to do. Cater to the people, you know, give them the food, give them the clothing they need, give them the toiletries. But initially, that wasn't enough for her because it felt like she should have done more
4: where do you think that instinct came from for her to always want to do more for people
9: (laughs) before this she was basically an angel seriously she would help anyone and everyone that's just in her nature she wanted to nurture even as her as a mother she was just a nurturer you know she wanted to take care of everyone and like her parents are awesome parents you know what i mean they loved her she grew up with that love you know i don't know It's just, I don't, I don't know why it hurt her so bad, you know, because she did what she wanted to do. Like that was one of the things that she prided herself on. That was her moment, you know, and she felt so honored and blessed that she was able to go help people. But in return, she got basically her youth taken away. Because my mom, even up until she passed away, like she wasn't living the way she needed to live. She was living in her house every day, didn't leave the house except for a doctor's appointment. You know, that depression, she didn't want to be out with people. She didn't want to feed herself. Okay, like it was that bad. I really think that that just hurt her to the core. Sorry, I'm trying not to cry. No, it's all right. The only thing I can take from it is that she just wanted to do more. And she felt that what she did wasn't adequate enough. But when I think about what more could she have done, I don't know. She went as soon as she could. The first team that they put together, she was in it. And I want to say she was gone for about two months. So she was gone for a good amount of time, but it just wasn't enough. Not for her anyways. Really, she only came home because she had kids, you know. (laughs) She would have stayed trying and trying and trying.
4: And so when you see this photo of her in that time... What do you see?
9: Oh, gosh, I just see the beauty. She wanted to be there. Even her hand, she's like, basically like giving. <laughs> like When I saw the picture and then I started laughing because that stupid little purse that she's got on, I used to drag her about it all the time. I'm like, Mom, you do not need to carry that purse. Why do you have your glasses around your neck like that? Please, Mom, just put them on your face. But if she put them down, she would lose them. So <laughs> the picture is just so her. <laughs> like her hand seriously she's showing that she's giving you know <laughs> like what do you need like you could go to her she was just such a calm loving person
4: she was someone that you could always go to and i assume you always did go to her growing up after nine eleven, that changed
9: yep it was kind of like she had to come to us <laughs> the roles reversed It's crazy because I don't know if that's how, you know, God knew that's the way life would work because we were raised that way. We could always take care of ourselves. But after 9-11, it just definitely changed.
4: So what is your relationship to 9-11 now?
9: After my mom passed, for me, it's more so sad. Because before, I used to think of it like, oh, man, that's the day my mom actually got to help people, you know? And, like, when I would talk to her, I would try to call her around 9-11 every year just because I don't want her to get that deep depression because it, would, it was like an ongoing cycle. She'd be okay, and then as soon as it got close to 9-11, she'd have her breakdown. I would call her. I'd be like, Mom, you know, you did such amazing things. That, you know, and I would talk about what I saw in the news or whatever, you know, and that would kind of bring her some joy. But as of now, nine eleven is just a, a more sadness for me. Before, it used to be some joy because I knew what my mom did for it. Her small part in it played a big part in her life.
4: And now it has none of that joy.
9: No. And I want it to, but, you know, these people that went there did so much. And I just really hope that these people are all okay. Everyone's different, so I'm sure that these people all have a normal life after this, you know? Or... Or if it affected them, it didn't affect them the way it affected my mom. Sorry. I don't want to sound selfish, but but I truly feel, you know, that this is what caused it. And it's not just me that feels this way. You know, like my brother and my sister, you know, we're all like, oh my gosh, you know, the thing that she prided herself on is what hurt her.
4: It's like the very thing that lifted her up was the thing that ultimately took her down.
9: Yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. She was holding on to the balloons, but there was also weights on her feet. You know, it was, it's just like nothing could balance out. That balance was gone.
4: You know, when I look at this photo of her, there's over 300 photos in this book. I only chose like four people to talk to.
9: Oh, that is so cool.
4: One of the reasons is that there aren't many women in the book, but two, I saw this woman And I can't really explain it, but I felt like um, a gravitational pull.
9: (laughs) Yes. You would have felt that in real life, too. I'd tell you, like, seriously, she was just so amazing. (laughs) And I'm not saying that because she's my mom. It's just like even kids at school, like, can we come to your house? Is your mom home? Like, they wanted to hang out with my mom before they'd hang out with me. (laughs) Yeah. so. She just had a beautiful everything about her. Her favorite phrase was, to know me is to love me. So if you knew her, you would love her.
4: To know me is to love me. Yep. <laughs> is that what you tell people now?
9: <laughs> no. Because if I said that that would be looked at as cocky, and, you know, I'm not cocky. I'm I'm her daughter, so that's cocky enough. Because if anyone ever had an issue, all she'd have to say is, they're just jealous of you, you know? So we always had a little chip.
4: <laughs> this may sound weird, but. What did her voice sound like? Oh, my
9: gosh. She was very calm. Like, she rarely yelled. She was always level-headed with most things, you know. Of course, I've saved every voicemail that I had from her, but in her later years, they were kind of silly.
4: That's incredible. It's so great that you've saved those.
9: My son started school, and I wanted to call her so bad to tell her, you know, oh, my gosh, she started school. And then I realized, hey, I can't call my mom. So then I just listened to this silly little voicemail, and I'm like, okay. She wouldn't want me sad right now. She'd want me happy.
4: How do you think she wanted you to live the rest of your years once she was gone?
9: Oh, gosh, not to be sad. To kind of like laugh it off, because that's what she did. Like she would laugh stuff off. And in essence, that's what I have as well. You know, like when something bothers me, I laugh it off. Even though it's not funny, I'm hurting, but I laugh just to get through it. That's how I'm, I'm thinking I'm supposed to live. I'm not supposed to be this sad person. The last couple years, the conversation was like, every time I talked to her, I could replay the conversation word for word. She'd pick up the phone. Hey, hey, baby, how you doing? Cheer up, buttercup. Seriously, she wouldn't say much of anything. How's your day? Oh, nothing much. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. That was like basically like it. The conversations were maybe like five minutes and more so be me rambling on, you know? And then the last time I talked to her, it was funny because the conversation was actually different. Like she actually held a whole conversation. What did you talk about? The last conversation is pretty stupid because I was a little upset because she called a couple times. And I was like, Mom, I said I would call you right back. I'm getting my hair done. You know, so she called again. She called again. And then the last time she called, she's like, "Okay, I called you four times now. You can talk to me for five minutes. So, you know, I talked to her for five minutes. But of course, the whole five minutes, I was kind of like, "Okay, Mom, what did you call to talk about? And all she called to talk to me about was that she had put minutes on her phone so I could talk to her as long as I wanted. (laughs) Hmm. Yep. Sorry. (laughs) All I take from this is that, you know, the strongest people fall. And if you need that help, you need to actually reach out to someone to actually talk about it. Because, you know, balling it up and, and not actually letting it out plays a toll on your mental. No one needs to deal with that.
4: And you felt like she bottled it up?
9: In essence, yes. You know, like she would have her days where she would just want to talk and be that person that she used to be. And then she'd quickly go back into her shell.
4: Since we are here in this moment, what do you want on the record to say about her and her memory as we close the chapter?
9: Just that, you know, that the thing that she took pride in the most was the thing that actually hurt her the most. But it didn't take away her joy from actually being able to do it. And so, you know, her heart was still there. It's just mentally, she wasn't. That's like it in a nutshell, you know. Because she still wanted to give, give, give. But it's just she physically and mentally couldn't. I mean, even though she's gone, she still helped so many people, you know. So, I mean, that's what we have to live on. Her memory of actually being that good person. There's not many people that would just drop everything they had to to go and try to do what they could. I mean, I think she did her part. (laughs) She did it well.
4: Do you have some of that same instinct in you?
9: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I am my mother's daughter, (laughs) like seriously. She's one of the reasons why me my brother and sister are so goal-oriented. Like me, I have my own business. My brother has his own restaurant. Well, I have a couple restaurants. My brother, my sister's a nurse, you know, she's an RN. We all are on the path that she put us on to be strong, helpful people. You know, like we'll get the shirts off our back for anyone that needs it as well. You know, the shoes off my feet, anything anyone needs. There you go. (laughs) We definitely all have that in us.
4: So she's living on through you three.
9: Oh, yeah, definitely. Anyone will tell you, Linda made some some strong kids. She definitely <laughs> brought that to the table. She wasn't going to have kids that weren't able to do things for themselves.
4: As we've been thinking about 9-11 and the 20th anniversary of it, we keep talking about this idea of grief and trauma and how the hell we keep moving forward, especially in the 20 years since then. As we leave, I wonder for you how you plan to um, live with it in the years to come.
9: I mean, for me, I'm going to work my ass off. Sorry, excuse my language. Work my butt off to make sure that I live up to what she expected of me. As far as starting my business, I would call and I'm like, mom, I don't know if this is going to work. She's like, just do it. You know, and then I'd send her the picture and she's like, wow, that's amazing. So for me, I got her artistic side. I can create and, you know, I do all these amazing custom creations for people. And I got that from her because she was very beautiful. Oh, my gosh. She could do such amazing drawing. She was really good at art. For me, I've taken that with me. I'm taking her drive with me, her willpower. That's what I'm taking. <laughs> that's how I survive.
4: If you take that with you, does that mean this year on nine eleven that you may be okay?
9: I won't say I'll be okay, but I'll get through it. And I'm not gonna let it, let me sit in the room all day. You know, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna actually be with my family and not be seclude. You know,
4: <laughs> you may not be okay, but you'll get through it.
9: Yeah. I mean, I don't want to lie and say, yeah, I'm going to be fine. You know, <laughs> I, I know that's not going to happen, but it definitely gives me some peace that, you know, she's being remembered by other people and not just me, not just my immediate family, but by other people, you know?
4: Well, thank you for um, sharing her with us.
9: Yes, definitely. Thank you for letting me share her with you. Such a pleasure.
4: The privilege is all mine. Bianca, thank you very much.
9: Oh, thank you.
4: Joel before we go is there a day in the aftermath that you especially remember a moment you've held close to you after all these years
5: your question brings a, a, an image to mind immediately it was a, it was an incredibly beautiful october day early october sun was hot i was walking through the pile and Two cops came over to me, said, Hey, what are you doing here? No photographs. You've got to leave right now. And I said, I, I'm working. I, you know, Here's my pass. And, and, uh, and I said, well, I'm, my car is down there pointing to the northern end. And I said, so I've got to walk there. It's the only way I'll, I'll get out of here. And they said, okay, but no more pictures. I said, okay, absolutely. And I, I left them and I walked away. And about 100 feet later... I come across this scene of a gigantic, maybe the biggest crane in America, I think they had brought in to start doing some heavy lifting. And it was a bright red crane with some red trucks around it. And the sun was hard on them. And behind it, smoke was rising. And and behind that were all the crushed structures. And then layered behind that was the landscape of skyscrapers in Lower Manhattan. And I'm standing there in awe of this incredible majestic image of destruction and decay and the past and maybe the future. And, and I'm feeling the hot false sun on my back. And you know, it feels really good when it's a chilly day, but the sun makes you feel good to be alive. And I suddenly think, huh? how can I be feeling this? I'm standing in this graveyard with almost 2,000 people lost and dead in here, and and I'm feeling good to be alive. And I was at a, a kind of breaking point at that moment. I thought, how can I let this image go? It's so meaningful in many ways. I understood then that the way memory works for all of us is that time erases step by step, almost drop by drop, the fact of any given moment. Whether it's a catastrophe like 9-11 or the death of a parent or a loved one, over time we move further away. And it's nature's way of healing. And I stood there dueling with that understanding and the reality and thinking I'm in here to make the record. And if the day creates a scene of incredible beauty, in spite of the fact of the destruction and disaster, then this is part of the tell. It's how we move into the future. It's how we have the courage to go forward. And when I think about 9-11 now... Sure, the shock of that act and the extraordinary success of it is still a powerful memory. But more powerful than that was the time actually spent with other human beings doing the work and the service that was necessary to clean it all away and start fresh. Because that's what it was all about. To prepare the ground for the next positive forward step toward the future.
4: Joel Meyerwitz, thank you very much.
5: Thanks, Sam. Thanks for inviting me and for asking these questions. And let's see what the future brings. Bye.
4: our show. Special thanks this week to Eric Lures and Guy Greenberg. Last year when we did this episode, they ran around New York for us, bringing microphones to people, re-listening to it this week. This episode would not have been possible without their help. I'd also like to thank Annalee McGavin and Joel Meyerwitz. And of course, big thanks to Lieutenant John Ryan, Amadeo Pooley, Yvonne Sanchez, and Bianca Quintanilla. I thank them for their time, their stories, and for sharing parts of their life with us on this show. To learn more about how and where you can support first responders and their families, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to purchase a copy of Aftermath by Joel Meyerowitz, visit our site at talkeasypod.com. To hear more episodes of Talk Easy and other Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support Talk easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, this show is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our editors for today's episode are Clarice Guevara, Eve Gershon, Caitlin Dryden, and Andre Lynn. It was mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Trisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries: Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Clever, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarrez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Fergoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a new episode. Until then, stay safe and so on.
8: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobilecom mobilecom unconventional unconventionalawards. See you there.